Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. Good morning. It's 8.30 on June 1st. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show is the first of the six-month-long hurricane season. Get a preview of what to expect as the weather and the waters heat up. While a new president has been named for Jackson State University, controversy surrounds that choice, the selection process, and now budget cuts that slash jobs. Our interest right now is to ensure that we provide Jackson State with the very best, strongest leadership, and we feel confident that we've accomplished that. Um, That's where we're just focused on that. Attorney General Jim Hood wages a campaign to fund programs he says could be lost during next week's special session. And in our book club, Starkville, Mississippi, is celebrated as one of six nationwide communities featured by author Phil Langdon. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Today marks the start of hurricane season. Although varying weather forecasts predict a near average to above average number of storms during the 2017 Atlantic hurricane season, it only takes one major hurricane to turn the season into a disastrous one. Officials from the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency, Mississippi National Guard and State Departments of Health, Transportation and Public Safety will join the National Weather Service staff and several local officials and emergency managers in Biloxi today. They'll discuss the 2017 hurricane season as the partners in preparedness summit comes to an end. MEMA is encouraging families and businesses to include finances, communication, and evacuation as part of your emergency preparedness plan for hurricane season. National Weather Service meteorologist in charge Ken Graham tells us the potential for the upcoming season. It looks like we're looking at a near to above average season. I mean, the the NOAA forecast, we have the potential to 11 to 17 name storms, five to nine hurricanes, and two to four of those being major. And the main reason for the change is we're not quite as confident as uh, El Nino showing its face this season. So that means a little more active. Why? What is El Nino's relationship to hurricanes? If you look at history, if we have an El Nino, unless a warm Pacific, that's an El Nino. Most of the time, we will have a below average season in the Atlantic. A La Nina, a cooler Pacific, will have an above average season in the Atlantic. However, you know, looking at the season and really looking at history, this is the big, big thing that we have to remember. Even if there's only one storm, if it hits us, it's a busy season. Is there a way to pinpoint whether the Gulf of Mexico is more vulnerable than, say, the eastern seaboard? That's a big factor in this whole forecast. That, that forecast there is the total number of storms. There is no forecast for looking at where the landfall will be. So really, when when you think about it, when you see these numbers, we have to be prepared because depending on the upper level patterns, many of those could be over the Atlantic. But 
a little change in the pattern, and those can get in the Gulf of Mexico, and those will impact us quite a bit. How does this forecast compare to last year and last couple of years? Last year looked like we were right at that average to above average, so it was an active season last year. But, you know, in, in a lot of the meetings that I go to, the feedback I'm getting is, well, you know, last year we didn't get anything. It wasn't very much last year. And I, and I always try to remind people it was a busy season. They just, it was on the East Coast, and many of those strong storms were out in the Atlantic. So the, the big takeaway has to once again be it just takes that one to, to get us, and, and that ruins our day. And normally, uh, is the eastern seaboard more likely to see hurricane activity than the Gulf? No, history says we're, we're the most likely. And I think what we've seen over the last two to three years, going back to Irene and Sandy and, and looking at Matthew uh, last year, it looks like the last two to three years it's been, it's been their turn. So they, they've got the brunt of most of the activity. But, you know, historically, historically, uh, the southern tip of Florida and along the Gulf of Mexico coast, we're the most vulnerable to the, the most hurricanes over the history of uh, our records. Interestingly, NPR had a story this morning about the possibility moving forward of meteorologists being able to determine the strength of a hurricane before it fully develops. What kind of resources do you have now to help you determine how strong a hurricane might be? If you look at the data, the Weather Service has gotten pretty good at, you know, the track forecast, where the storm's going to go. In fact, you know, we're 24 hours out. There's only about a 30-mile error in that forecast. What's flat is that intensity. We haven't made a whole lot of progress, some progress, but not a lot in the intensity forecast. So some new tools. So the biggest tool is the new satellite, the NOAA satellite that was uh, launched recently, the GOES-16. We're seeing things in, in the upper atmosphere that, you know, we've never seen so clear. So we're going to see some of those steering currents. We're going to see some of those, uh, the dry air little streams that, that come out of uh, Central America that impact the intensity. I think we're going to see an improvement in that intensity forecast in, in the upcoming years. Finally, the takeaway from all of this in this hurricane season. The takeaway is so simple, but not so simple. We have to have a plan. We hear it all the time. The number one cause of fatalities with the tropical system is storm surge. The number two is inland rain flooding. Three-quarters of the fatalities are because of the water. We have to have a plan. Everybody has to have a plan for that water and know where to go when the local officials tell you to get out. The number one cause indirect fatalities from a hurricane is cardiac arrest, and that involves the plan, too, the stress of not having a plan, the stress of staying behind. So it is so imperative. Everybody has a plan now because once we have a hurricane burn down on us, it's tough to concentrate and come up with that plan then. Ken Graham is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Slidell. Thank you so much, Ken. You bet, Karen. Governor Phil Bryant has declared May 29th through June 2nd as Hurricane Preparedness Week in Mississippi to ensure residents are prepared for the upcoming tropical weather season. Coming up, the Jackson State University community is facing major changes. Details just ahead. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio, we appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org.
This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. William Bynum is the next president of Jackson State University, despite controversy surrounding his selection and the announcement of upcoming budget cuts. The Board of Trustees of State Institutions of Higher Learning announced the unanimous decision on Wednesday. The same day, interim president Rod Page announced the school will be cutting jobs as part of a budget reduction and recovery plan. The university's cash reserves decreased from $37 million to $4 million under former president Carolyn Myers. As the administration makes plans to move forward, many alumni are speaking out against the process by which the college board chose Bynum, who is the current president of Mississippi Valley State University. Yolanda Owens is president of the JSU National Alumni Association. She tells MPB's Alexis Ware the group's concerns about the search process. Our main issue is with the search process itself. Uh, Dr. Bynum was presented to us as a candidate and uh, did not advance to the final round of the search process. So we dealt with three candidates that we believed would, would have an opportunity to be named as the president. And when none of those top three were named and Dr. Bynum's name was released as the preferred candidate, we no longer had any confidence in the board and the board's uh, own policy and process that it had put into place. So we did not understand how someone who did not make it to the top three could then emerge as the preferred candidate for the president of Jackson State. Okay, so will you tell me a little bit about what was discussed at that press conference this morning? Uh, again, it was reiteration of the fact that we have zero confidence in the board and its own application of its own policy that has uh, been in place for a number of years. So Gene uh, Frazier, Kendall Bunch, and I each issued statements regarding um, condemnation of the board itself. We spoke very little about Dr. Bynum as the preferred candidate. Uh, quite frankly, we have not had an opportunity to uh, really vet him as a candidate. So we have not spoken to his qualifications because we have not been given the opportunity to review his qualifications. The board brought us in as an advisory committee to uh, help review the applications and be a part of the interview process. And uh, Dr. Bynum was a part of the first round interviews and did not advance to the second round. So we have not had an opportunity to really review his qualifications in the same manner that we did the three finalists. So that that was part of what we talked about during the press conference this morning. Um, the other part is, again, calling for reform, calling for policy reform as far as the board search policy is concerned because the policy is written in such a manner that it has circular references that allows it to conflict itself. And um, at any time during the process, the board is allowed to insert an additional candidate in. So how is there any... Um, consistency or continuity in the process if at any time the board can circumvent its own process. Were you given an opportunity to see some of his qualifications in that first initial vote? We were given an opportunity to review his resume and uh, to listen to him during the first round interview. As an advisory committee, we did not believe that he should advance to the second round of interviews, and the board actually did not advance him to the second round. So again, that's part of the confusion as to why he could emerge as the top candidate when the board never advanced him to the second round. So we are just confused on why three candidates were advanced to the final round, and none of those candidates were selected to be the preferred candidate, and the board cho chose to go with someone who uh, had not advanced further in the search. 
So you said that you're calling for reform. Will you speak a little bit about that and exactly what you mean by that? Well, uh, really total reform of the search policy as it's published on the IHL website. It has language that talks about a candidate who is known to the board. So what what exactly does that mean? Is that someone who is friends with the board? Is that someone who um, has lobbied with the board? So we don't know what that language means. So again, we're looking at total reform of the board policy so that no other institution has to endure this type of process. And so does this reform, is that leading to a lawsuit against IHL? The Jackson State University National Alumni Association is not a part of the lawsuit. Those are individual members um, of the alumni who uh, have chosen to file that lawsuit. So the association is, is not in any way involved with that lawsuit. What do you hope happens moving forward? There will be a call to all alumni of Jackson State to continue to support the university regardless of who is named as the president. So going forward, uh, Dr. Bynum does have a lot of work to do as it relates to building relationships, mending uh, relationships that unfortunately the board has destroyed. So the first thing that has to happen is uh, we need to be able to establish those working relationships between the president, the administration, the students, and the alumni. Yolanda Owens is the president of the Jackson State National Alumni Association. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. A group of JSU alumni and supporters are now suing the college board over racial discrimination. C.D. Smith is president of the board of trustees. He tells our Alexis Ware the board acted fairly. We had over 50 applicants. We went through the followed our process and we identified uh, a number of candidates to interview. And based on uh, all of those interviews, we've concluded that uh, the selection of Will Bynum was the best fit uh, for the university. So as far as any kind of divisiveness, obviously, I'm thinking, you know, uh, not everybody uh, was on the same page in our most recent presidential election. Uh, I'll use that as an example. Uh, But I can assure you that our interest in selecting a president for Jackson State was to ensure that we provided the best leadership for the university's future success. And we feel confident that that has been accomplished. In the earlier community talk, there was a mention of some racial biases in the selection process that Jackson State was put at a a disadvantage that other universities wouldn't normally have to go through. What are your thoughts on that? I've been on the board. This is my 10th year. I'm in my 10th year. And we as a board, the 12 of us, are very committed to ensure that all eight of our universities are treated fairly. Uh, without any regard to race or any other uh, agenda or issue, is we want the best leadership. Uh, we want the uh, uh, the university to have the best chance to succeed. And any notion of it being racially driven or motivated is just not was not a factor. What we want is for this university just like we want for all of our universities to be positioned to have a bright, successful future. Employees affected by the budget reduction will receive a 30-day notice. Coming up, ahead of a legislative decision on the Attorney General's budget, the office is informing the public of the need for and value of its programs. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
Your home for the arts and music is MPB Music Radio. From classical to bluegrass and everything in between, MPB Music Radio has a sound for every ear. For information on where to find MPB Music Radio, visit mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition. Attorney General Jim Hood is calling on state residents for support as the state legislature looks to the upcoming special session. The meeting will determine the division's funding for the next fiscal year as it faces a major budget shortfall. The AG on Wednesday released statistics measuring the impact of his cybercrime division. He says it's one of the leading programs in the country. Attorney General Hood is asking leaders to replace at least $4 million in funding necessary to keep nine programs going he says the office sorely needs the funding basically our office would get 6.5 to 7 million every year from these fees and what the legislature did they diverted that money off into their own legislative fund and they didn't forward the money onto our office and the 28 percent cut shows that that money was not uh has not been forwarded onto our office we have more demands i mean and so what I'm doing here today is hopefully, uh, you know, through you and the media to try to help educate those that think or have the philosophy to kill the beast, you know, that uh, we should kill our own government. They don't really understand how important these programs are to daily life of Mississippians out there. And what we're doing is we're calling on uh, citizens to contact their legislators uh, before Monday's special legislative session and ask them to replace, put back that $4 million uh, that our office desperately needs uh, to continue uh, to provide these services to victims and law enforcement and all this, this list of, of, of uh, programs that have been funded before the legislature diverted the money. The state legislature will convene on June 5th. In other news, the much-anticipated Kemper County Energy Facility has failed to meet its May 31st deadline to be fully operational. Mississippi Power released the announcement as they continue to assess the project schedule and costs for monthly status report due to the Public Service Commission today. On Monday, June 5th, the company is expected to make a rate filing for the project to recoup costs from its customers. Once the plant is fully operational, the filing can be amended to add additional rate increase requests. The $7.3 billion power plant was scheduled to be online by May 31st. Public Service Commissioner Brandon Presley says they don't know what to expect. They can file and leave Kemper out if they want to and then file you know, file a supplemental filing of some kind. Uh, we, we just don't know what they're going to do at this point. I know they're working on it. Uh, they've been talking with the public utility staff about how they go about this. Uh, and so we, we believe they're going to be prepared to file something with us uh, probably by June the 5th. So we just don't stand by at this point to see what happens. And then the commission will call a meeting and consider what's been filed and determine how we go forward from there. Coming up, author Philip Langdon takes us on a walk through Starkville's Cotton District. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and a state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
The small town of Starkville is getting big praise for its cotton district. Author Philip Langdon features the neighborhood in his book Within Walking Distance, which encourages creating livable communities. The longtime writer chose to focus on just six towns from across the country. He says much can be learned from the development and viability of places like Starkville's cotton district. He tells us how he decided to write about communities. I've been writing about the need to have places that have a mix of uses that you can get to on foot for a long time in various places. And I decided I should try to explore this by looking at a half dozen places of different sizes, different characters across the country to look into how walkable communities, what it's like to live in them, and how places that have some degree of pedestrian orientation improve over the years and how they develop. So I looked at a bunch of places that I'd heard something about and some cases had been to previously. What is the range of populations? Are we talking about high urban areas, rural areas? The densest places that I looked at were center city Philadelphia, which is obviously very dense. And I looked at a Mexican-American neighborhood on the southwest side of Chicago that has 79,000 people in about four and a half square miles. And I looked at the Pearl District in Portland, Oregon, which is about 7,000 people. And at the other end, I looked at Brattleboro, Vermont, which is a town of about 12,000. But it has a really great downtown that people have tried to keep together. And I looked at the Cotton District in Starkville, Miss. Which is one of the reasons why we're talking to you about this book, because you do include, among the six, the Cotton District of Starkville. Why Why Starkville? Why that particular district? About 22 years ago, I was an editor at Progressive Architecture Magazine, and a writer from the Miami area wrote an article about Dan Camp and what he'd done in Starkville. At that point, he'd already been working for over 20 years at buying up old dilapidated buildings in an area near a defunct cotton mill in Starkville and either fixing them up and renting them out, usually to students at Mississippi State University, which is very close by, or tearing them down and building new buildings, but in a very traditional style, based on what he'd seen in New Orleans and Savannah and Charleston and a whole bunch of places across the South and sometimes in Europe as well. He's been doing this now for over 40 years. He trained workers to actually make some of the building components themselves, and he's held on to the properties and trained his own crew in maintenance, and it's become the liveliest place in Starkville. So I had never been to it until 2014. I went down and spent several days there, uh, spent a lot of time with Dan Camp and other people, and actually a lot of people from Starkville talking about this district and, and what it meant to the community. It's got a lot of character. It's, it's only 10 blocks, but, boy, it's, I mean, it has loads of little places to eat and drink. It has shops. It has housing in, uh, well, the smallest one is, is a little kind of Greek Revival-style building that's 14 by 28 feet. And these buildings all have a lot of charm, and he's just continued to build it up over the years, and people are very proud of it in Starkville. The book is called Within Walking Distance and then uh, Creating Livable Communities for All. Walking and livable communities, can you talk about the relationship? Does it mean that 
all the good stuff has to be within walking distance? Well, it doesn't have to be, but I think it makes life better. It makes life more convenient. And I think that, you know, we also have a problem of people not getting enough exercise. And so, you know, so people put on a lot of weight and, and we have a problem with diabetes. I think people just naturally get more exercise as part of daily life when they live in a place where there are useful things that they can walk to. I think there's a lot of satisfaction comes from that because walkable places, if they have some gathering spots, people get opportunities to see other people and enjoy them and become more knowledgeable about what's going on in their vicinity. I think it's more satisfying. Having a walking destination. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is one of the trends that's taking place is that there are a lot of people who are looking for walkable communities. A lot of millennials are kind of leaving the cul-de-sac where they grew up behind and moving into either urban centers or suburban centers or small towns that have things within close distance. And also some people whose kids are grown are saying, gee, it'd be nice to live where we could just walk out the door and find some things to go to and enjoy. There's a growing demand for these kinds of places. The book is called Within Walking Distance, Creating Livable Communities for All. Philip Langdon is the author and who we've been speaking to. And Mississippians, thank you for including the Cotton District of Starkville in your book. Yeah, well, I was glad to do that. It's a great place. Thank you. Thank you so much. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10 o'clock, it's Season Pass. 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio.